0: We've often talked about how the church is called to have a prophetic voice in history. We're a community with a prophetic role to play in society, a prophetic task to enact in this world. And at a time when our nation has been confronted yet again with the ugly specter of racism and hatred that brings with it injustice and violence and death, we feel our calling to this prophetic role all the more. But what does that look like? How do we respond prophetically in this situation? How is the church to act prophetically in this moment? I want to take time this morning to describe three features of what a prophetic response might look like. The first two features or characteristics are things which we can act on more immediately. However, the third is perhaps more difficult and requires an even deeper investment of ourselves. Nevertheless, we must understand that this third feature is actually foundational to the church's prophetic calling. So first, when you look at the prophets of the Old Testament, they are personally aggrieved by the situation that they find themselves in, and they wrestle with this grief first of all before God. We are deeply troubled by the horrific killing of George Floyd. Even if he hadn't died, just to see someone being treated in this way should make our stomachs turn. If the scriptures are to be believed, then apparently the first thing we're invited to do is to pour out our feelings of distress and sadness and anger before God. This is the time when we need to read those psalms, which won't allow us to stuff those feelings into some deep, dark recesses of our heart, but instead provides the words for us to bring our complaints and our laments, not just to social media, but to God. Psalm 44 is one example you have made us a reproach to our neighbors the scorn and derision of those around us you have made us a byword among the nations the people shake their heads at us i live in disgrace all day long and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge all this came upon us Though we had not forgotten you, we had not been forced to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path, but you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it since we, he knows the secrets of the heart? Yet for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? These psalms are not acts of faithlessness or unfaith, but for the trusting community, these psalms express a bold faith. First of all, because they insist that the world must be experienced as it really is, and not in some pretended way, not in some glossed over way, not in some pasted on smile way, not in some your best life now way. And second it is an act of faithfulness because it insists that in all such experiences of frustration and grief and anger there is nothing out of bounds nothing precluded or inappropriate everything properly belongs in this conversation of the heart in fact to hold back this conversation is to attempt to withhold parts of life from god no Everything must be brought to speech and everything that is brought to speech must be addressed to God, who is the final reference for all of life. So this is the first thing we might need to do if the church is to fulfill her prophetic calling today. And it is out of this honest conversation with God, where nothing is withheld, that the church can fulfill another part of its prophetic calling. That is, to be able to speak to and take action against injustice in our society. When we see injustice, we don't just want to talk about it. We want to see it addressed. We want to see things actually changed and put right. In short, we want to see injustice usurped by justice. I'm in conversation with several friends about gospel and race and justice. One of them is my friend Trey. We started talking about this stuff back in 2009, and we've literally been through thick and thin together. My conversations with him have helped me tremendously in so many meaningful ways, so I want to share several things from our discussions that might help us think about these issues. Trey has two children, a boy and a girl, and he's told me on more than one occasion that he has this sort of added burden as a parent, because as his son Z enters into his teens, He's going to have to sit him down and have the conversation with him about how to respond and behave in certain situations, especially when dealing with the police, because he will be a black teen on his way to becoming a young black man, and as a father, he doesn't want to get the call one day that his son has been shot in some encounter with the police. What makes it even harder, he says, is that at the end of that conversation, he's going to have to tell his son, look, Z, there there is still the risk that the situation could go badly wrong anyway. All we can do is try to mitigate that risk. I don't want my friend to have to do that. Why should that even be a conversation with his young son? Why should his son ever have to carry this around with him wherever he goes? But as Trey says, he'd be crazy not to prepare him in this way. But it is part of the church's prophetic role to imagine a world where Trey would never have to think about this, where those kinds of conversations would just be completely irrelevant. And and even though we may ask, is that possible? Could, Could that ever happen? Part of the prophetic calling is to be able to imagine the unimaginable, to think and imagine outside the way things are or outside the way things have always been. Only a community with this unbounded, prophetic imagination has a chance to create a new situation. In the email that went out last week, we shared three campaigns. One of them focuses specifically on policing for the 21st century, and it mentions that one way to prevent police brutality is to create greater accountability for those who enforce the law. Among other things, this includes providing body cams for all police. So we're in the process of finding out which police precincts need this, the costs involved, and if it's possible for us to contribute in some small way to purchasing this equipment. We want to do anything we can to contribute to a world where this generation of black parents will be the last generation of parents in America where they have those conversations with their children. It may seem impossible, but being able to envisage a different future is part of what it means to have a prophetic imagination but as well as addressing our grief to God, the first part of what it means to be prophetic, and working to fight unjust structures in our society, a second characteristic of the prophetic community. The truly prophetic community also has to be able to see the deeper problem and address it through a deeper long-term endeavor. We must understand the magnitude of the thing we're dealing with, the potent historical forces at play, We must recognize events now as the continuation of a long and ugly history. Make no mistake about it. We are going up against centuries, centuries of evil, as I shared on on last Sunday's meeting. And only someone with a severe case of historical amnesia would be surprised by this. And so we must remember. Let me quote my friend Trey again with this very succinct historical survey that he gave me. We, as the beneficiaries of Western capitalism, are some of the most powerful people in the world, and yet the system on which we base our power is in large part a legacy founded on this transatlantic slave trade. During this brutality, there were slave revolts, but the only successful revolt took place in Haiti, where they managed to kill off the slave owners or run them out. But today it is the poorest nation on earth, and among other things, American neocolonialism has had its own devastating effects so slavery ends and then there was sharecropping freed slaves working the land but the slave owners from whom they'd just been freed were also the landowners and essentially took the lion's share then the industrial revolution comes with new technological advancements but black people were not being hired for those jobs and so they were locked out of those opportunities too Some black people tried to establish their own communities. Tulsa would be the prime example, but there are are dozens of them uh, with their own school systems and hospitals and businesses. There were dozens of these communities. But the next thing you know, the neighborhood of Greenwood in Tulsa was bombed and firebombed and people, often educated professionals, were shot and killed. And then we arrive at the civil rights movement and the dogs are unleashed. And there are lynchings, and there are church bombings, and fire hoses, and, and so, as I said last Sunday, we can smash the legal enshrinement of segregation. But it's not enough, because look, here we are. And so if we don't remember this long history, we will naively think that we can fix the problem with more legislation, or more education, or more accountability, or better policing. Now, look, these are all important and vital things, but the problem of racial injustice, I'm afraid, resides in darker, murkier, more complicated places, like in our hearts and in a network of disparate and broken relationships. That's what needs fixing. And in the church, God is taking a broken, fractured humanity that is turned against itself and divided against itself and is putting us back together in Christ. It is the humanity-shaping project that we talked about last week, that we've been talking about for a few weeks. This is the very long view of things which Jesus calls us to have, and which requires an ongoing investment of ourselves in each other. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this. He says, For he himself is our peace Because if you read that carefully, we, we often think about having to establish our individual relationship with God through Christ first, and then we join the church. But here Paul reverses the order. He puts it the other way around. It's not until we are reconciled to each other in Christ and made into one new humanity, as he says, in Christ, then and only then are we made presentable to God together. This is a deep and it is a very long project. So let me illustrate this long-term view of things that Paul's describing here. I think it's great that people have been thoughtful about what they've been posting on social media and using social media as a way of expressing solidarity. I know that's not always the way it's being used, but, but many people in our community are doing that. But I've also heard several times now that if you're not black, You have to post something on your personal social media accounts. Otherwise your black friends won't know that you stand in solidarity with them. Now this points to several problems. One of them being the diminishment of the word friend. Let's not get confused. If your friends, black or white or Asian have to see you post on social media to know where you stand and how you feel and what you think about racism and injustice, then they're probably not your friends. Three friends reached out to me and Julia within 24 hours over the last weekend. We're culturally different from each other. Not one of them called to talk about racial injustice or what Julia or myself think about it. They didn't have to ask, they just know. So why did they call? Well, they called because they just wanted to ask how we were doing and we talked about our families and the details of our lives. A couple of weeks ago, another friend sent a very generous gift because he wanted to make sure we're okay. You think that guy's wondering, hmm, Stephen hasn't posted on social media, maybe he's not standing in solidarity with me. It would never cross his mind because we're friends. You see, it doesn't matter what culture or color we are. If we are followers of Jesus, then we are being called to forge those kinds of friendships with people who are different from us in whatever way that may be but where there is no shadow of a doubt that we love each other and that we have each other's backs no matter what. So this, I think, is what it means to be prophetic. You see, sometimes people get confused and they think by going around pointing out all the problems and showing all the injustices in the world and saying, do you know how bad things are? Are you aware of how terrible this all is? That by doing that, we have now been prophetic. But that's not true. Calling out the problems is the easy bit. We have to call people to something. So we have to pray, yes. We have to act, absolutely. But most of all, we have to live this out in our own lives and in our own real relationships. Then we can invite the world around us and say, look this is what it looks like when we love each other. This is what it looks like when we trust each other. This is what it looks like when we take part in the humanity-shaping project that Jesus is inviting us to. Amen.